Hello and welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of entertainment website We Got This Covered. I'm Jonathan Lack. And I'm Sean Chapman. And we're here to talk about stuff. As we always do. Yes. We've been off for a week. If you didn't notice, there was no podcast last week. That was not for any particular reason, other than that scheduling was wonky and I had a bunch of daytime screenings and Sean had stuff going on at night, so there was no way to record a podcast. But that's okay. We're back this week. And we've actually got a lot to talk about. Yes, I think we do. Yeah, we had a topic picked out last week, and then sort of a bunch of news came in, so we're going to cover a couple of those things. In specific, the topic today is we're going to talk about Rooster Teeth's Red vs. Blue Season 10. We talked at the beginning of this season sort of at a a reminiscence on the whole Red vs. Blue series as a whole, and we talked about sort of our hopes for Season 10 and all that. But now Season 10 is, I think, Episode 9 just aired yesterday, or two days ago when you hear this podcast. And so we want to talk about the first nine episodes of the series, how we think season ten's going so far. Red versus blue, you know, we love talking about it. So it's just, you know, it's not a show you can talk about on an episode by episode basis, really. So we just thought we'd come in at the halfway point and talk about how it's doing. So that'll be one topic. The other topic we're going to do today, before that, is we're going to talk about the announcement of the Hobbit trilogy. Peter Jackson announced last week via his Facebook page, which is sort of interesting that big film announcements yeah. happen that way now. But it is kind of cool, too, though, that you go to Facebook and it's like, oh, Peter Jackson has a message for me. Anyway, but he announced they're going to be expanding the Hobbit duology into a trilogy, and there's been a lot of controversy surrounding that, and we just sort of want to chew out some fanboys and stuff. Yes, that's that's kind of a weird way to phrase it, but yes. That's a very weird way to phrase that. Yes. If only we could edit this somehow. I don't know how we could. I have no idea. If only there was software, like something we could use. Yeah, but anyway... Unfortunately, that doesn't exist. I know. Anyway, before we get into all that, there's a couple of little just sort of, you know, stuffage, life stuff things we want to talk about. In particular, Sean and I, if you don't know, we're based out of Denver, is where we record this podcast, and live. Actually, Golden, Colorado. Yeah. We say Denver because no one outside of Colorado knows about Golden, apparently. Oh, well. Anyway. But we're based around Denver, and Denver... It's a really cool place to live if you love film. We've got a great film community. We've got a great film festival every year put on by the Denver Film Society, uh, which is the Stars Denver Film Festival. I'm excited for that to start again. But the Denver Film Society is doing something even cooler than their normal film festival this year, and it starts in August, and I'm so excited. They are showing a uh, festival, a five-week festival, of all of Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli's films. And if you don't know about Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli... I guess this isn't going to sound as cool to you, but it should sound cool. And if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that Hayao Miyazaki is one of is my favorite filmmaker of all time, bar none. Sean respects him very much too, obviously. Yeah. And it's just really neat they're doing this festival. And I just I want to talk about it and promote it and just say it's really cool and tell you that I'm we're going to talk about it a little more on this podcast as the weeks go by, just to mention how it's going and stuff. I immediately, as soon as they put the notice up, bought my pass for all 17 movies they're showing. I. I'm probably the nerd who was the first person who bought a ticket, but oh well, I'm really excited. I I think you underestimate (laughs) other nerds in the world, Jonathan. I mean, literally, though, I was on Twitter, the, like, notice came in, like, we've just put this on sale, I clicked it, bought it, and I was, like, losing my mind, because this isn't just, like, they're showing they've gotten the DVDs out and they're screening them in their center. They've actually, this is a a presentation that G-Kids, which is this... Uh, company here in the United States that does foreign films, mostly anime. They've sublicensed it all from Disney directly through Ghibli, though. And so they've gotten all the Ghibli films. They've done this sort of deal where they've gotten brand new 35mm print struck of all these classic movies with new English subtitles on there that I assume are better than the Disney translations, which are fairly subpar if you've ever seen them. And so 
that is one of the coolest things ever. I mean, especially in an age where everything's going digital, that we're committing to a festival all based around 35mm presentation of these things is awesome. I love that. And, uh, I mean, to be honest, people in Japan don't even sort of get an opportunity like this. I mean, they saw them all and they came out theatrically, but to see brand new prints all in a row, it's going to be really cool. I've only seen one or two of these, you know, presented theatrically, probably spirited away and everything after that, because that's when they started coming out in the U.S., but, um... I'm really excited for this. And obviously, also, when these came out in the U.S. originally, they would all have been in English. These are in their original Japanese in theaters. That's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really psyched for this. There's so many good ones. They start the first weekend. They're doing My Neighbor Totoro and Whisper of the Heart, which are two of my favorite films of all time. I, my Neighbor Totoro is in my top ten, and Whisper of the Heart would be in my top fifteen if we expanded out to that. Great movies. Really excited for that. And just wanted to mention it really quick. So if you are in Denver, we are the third city in America to get this festival. That's incredible. Uh, these prints have only been shown a couple of times, so they're really brand new. So this is really exciting. And, uh, you know, if you're a Miyazaki fan, hope to see you there. Okay. Anything else going on in your life, Sean, you want to talk about? Any games or movies? I mean, most I've been doing a lot of stuff around the house. Like, I just recently shoveled three tons of rock because our, our houses, we've had that house for as long as I've been alive, so... Obviously, like, we have a lot of rock, like, pebble rocks in the yard. And over the years, they've gotten scattered and eroded. So my mom decided we were going to do that one day and ordered three tons of rock, had it dumped in our driveway, basically, and I had to shovel it and put it in a wheelbarrow. So that's been my life for a while. That sucks, Sean. Jesus. Yeah, no, but then... And this is, like, a week after you get your wisdom teeth out, too? Yeah, yeah. But then, I mean, what I've been... <laughs> the, the other stuff I've been doing is about... I guess it's been a while now, but, like, three weeks or so ago... The Steam summer sale for PC video games ended, so I've been just, like, been working through a lot of video games I got off of there for, like, $5. Yeah. So, yeah. Mostly I've been playing, it's this really cool game called Reseteer, which you kind of have to pace yourself with, but it's a game where you, it's sort of like an anime Japanese RPG type game, but it's got this really awesome premise where you, the character you play as Reset basically runs an item shop that sells items to the adventurers, like the kind of adventurers in other RPG games, and then you can hire adventurers out to go get, like, really good items in the dungeons, so it has, like, a fairly traditional JRPG play style there, too, but then it's also got this sort of, like, economic shop-running game. It's really yeah. addicting and really fun. I, uh, actually, as soon as you told me about that game last week, Sean, I went to try to install Boot Camp on my Mac so I could play that. Haven't gotten it working just yet. Yeah, that's, that's I want to play it. It's a whole trial. It's also the the one the only thing I that's kind of frustrating with Reseteer is that it doesn't. I don't I don't know if it's just my system or what, but I've, it doesn't run really great. Like every time, so I'm like, well, it's like maybe like once every ten times I go to a loading screen for some reason I have to like tab out of the program and tab back in. It's just like random PC game nonsense yeah. that is a little frustrating. The other game I've been playing that's it's a pretty old game. I think it came out in like two thousand seven. But it was on the Steam sale. It's Stalker Shadows of Chernobyl, which is this old PC shooter game that you basically play as this dude in this, like, kind of like an alternate timeline Chernobyl's. There's been, like, a second nuclear meltdown in the Chernobyl area and, like, all this radiation crap's going on. And, like, there's crazy anomaly, like, gravitational anomalies from the radiation. It's a really, really depressing game, but it's also really, really fun. It's just incredibly tense because you're, instead of like a traditional shooter game where like say like Call of Duty where you aim and you shoot if you aim down the sights you know the bullet basically goes straight where you're aiming 
in Stalker, it feels more realistic where it's like, if you're shooting at a dude like 100 meters away, it's not the bullet's not necessarily just going to hit him just because you're using an assault rifle. You have to really account for distance and you have to move in close and it's really tense. The only thing that's really weird about Stalker is that when I looked up sort of the universe, I realized that the it's like sort of has this post-apocalyptic setting and the game doesn't do a great job of sort of like fleshing it out. It sort of just like throws you in there. Which is kind of cool, but it's a little bit frustrating. But when I looked up, like, sort of, like, the surrounding fiction and stuff, I realized that the entire world isn't post-apocalypse. It's really just sort of this area around Chernobyl, which makes you wonder, it's like, why the fuck are all these people hanging out in this, like, ridiculous, like, radiation zone with, like, giant mutants (laughs) that try to kill you? Just to, like, I mean, they basically are treasure hunters because the radiation creates these weird artifacts. But it's, like... It's so not worth it. Like, it, there's just, like, random insanity, like, mutants that are, like, floating fireballs that shoot fire at you, and just, like, creatures that have, like, tentacles that suck out your blood. It's just, like, if that ever happens in real life, don't go there. Just don't do it. Just live out your life with, like, the safe places of the world. So it's, yeah. like, every time I boot up the game, I'm just, like, I don't want to go through this, like, creepy sewer and fight monsters. It's like, dude, just, can I just, like, leave? Can I just get the fuck out of here? Because that's what I want to do. The game doesn't let you do that. That's too bad. Yeah. That's, that, that, I almost just want to play it just to experience the weirdness of it. Yeah, it, it is a pretty, some of the mutant designs are pretty weird. Yeah. But yeah. All right, anything else we want to mention before we go forward? Uh, I think it's time to move on to our pre-main topic topic. Yes. So our pre-main topic topic is... The announcement about the Hobbit trilogy. And just a little background, Lord of the Rings is my favorite film of all time, if you count the trilogy as, as one entity, which I think you absolutely can. And I know it's one of Sean's favorites. Yeah. And so we're huge fans. I, I could not be more excited about the Hobbit. It just, everything looks like it's coming together so well. So, anyway, the other day, so Peter Jackson makes this announcement, and it was also a big press release, it wasn't just the Facebook thing, but his thing on Facebook, I want to read, you know, a little chunk of it here. He said, we were really pleased with the way the story was coming together, in particular the strength of the characters and cast who have brought them to life, all of which gave rise to a simple question, do we take this chance to tell more of the tale, and the answer from our perspective as the filmmakers and as fans was an unreserved yes. And then he goes on to explain all the sort of things that they want to explore in greater depth, and... I want to just ask for your reaction on that, Sean. What when you know when you heard about this announcement and sort of read Peter Jackson's statement? What was your reaction? I mean, I do have to admit that my initial reaction was that's kind of weird because yeah. I should say The Hobbit is is. I mean, I don't know if I would say it's my favorite book of all time, but it was definitely my favorite book as a kid. I read it a lot, and so I I, I know the book really well. And just from if you were just doing a straight adaptation of what's strictly in the book, yeah. it seems almost impossible to make it into even two movies. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and just like the the idea of making the Hobbit into three movies seems really weird on the surface, but then when you do think about, like I, I don't a lot of people I don't think realize just how much sort of, I mean it's kind of weird to call it this, but like expanded universe fiction of that was set in Middle Earth that Tolkien wrote. Well, that's what makes the expanded universe of Lord of the Rings unique is that Tolkien wrote it all. Yeah, it's like like I mean it's it's almost not even really appropriate to call it expanded universe stuff because yeah. that term is generally used for franchises like Star Wars or Star Trek where they will have novels like set in those universes but aren't necessarily part of the main fiction like the movies or the TV shows would be. And but for yeah, for Lord of the Rings They've, there's all this content that he wrote that's yeah. not just The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. There are the appendices in Return of the King that are a bunch of sort of like little short stories, more or less. There's the Silmarillion that is 
a collection of a bunch of, of basically short stories that go through like the history of Middle Earth. Well, even if, for me in the appendices, one thing that people forget is there's the timeline. And yeah. that's crucial because there are little blurbs there that could be whole movies. Yeah. Like Gimli and Legolas traveling out of Middle Earth. At the end of the fourth age, mm-hmm. just little things like that, and there's and of course it starts before the Hobbit and goes through the events of the Hobbit too. So there's all these little blurbs that you could expand into hours of material. Yeah, I mean because he J.R.R. Tolkien really fleshed out. I mean yeah. he created an entire history, like an entire mythology with the Lord of the Rings universe with Middle Earth. Yeah. And so there is just vast amounts of content that you can adapt into film. Yes. And so it seems really clear to me that that's what Peter Jackson's going to be doing. I mean, that's already what we already knew he was doing when he split The Hobbit into two parts, is that he's not just focusing... It looks like The Hobbit movies aren't just going to be Bilbo's perspective. He's also going to see... Because Gandalf has... If if you know The Hobbit book, Gandalf's not in most of The Hobbit. He, like, sort of shows up, he gets them off on their journey, he leaves for a bit, he comes back, he leaves for a bit, he comes back, and then he's gone for, like, basically the second half of the book, more or less. So... He's off doing all this crazy stuff in, like, Mirkwood and Dol Guldur and all this stuff, and dealing with the necromancer who you know is Sauron. Like, there's, right. he has all these crazy adventures that, if he's, at least judging from the trailers and what they've talked about, seems like that's going to be a big focus of the movies as well. Right. And, you know, even then, I think there's space within The Hobbit itself to expand events that Tolkien does kind of describe, like the Battle of Five Armies. Yeah. Because it's not, I mean, they, he describes what happens, but it's Bilbo's out for that. Yeah, you know? yeah, he gets knocked out. But that could be, it's sort of like, the. I mean, this is an imperfect comparison, but, you know, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows was split into two, largely to have the second film focused on the Battle of Hogwarts. That's something you can, I always assumed they were doing with Hobbit film, too, is to focus on the Battle of the Five Armies and give that the right weight. Mm-hmm. Sort of like Helm's Deep. It's technically just one chapter in the book, The Two Towers, but if you don't give that an hour and a half of film, you're not doing it right. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the same thing with a lot of the stuff in The Hobbit. You have to give that time and energy and flesh it out and really show it. And so the two-film approach always made sense to me in that regard. I think it did yeah. to you, too. So when I heard my reaction to the third movie announcement, it was actually exactly the same as yours. I thought, that's a little counterintuitive, but then you start to think about it, and my, my real big initial reaction was, Peter Jackson has spent the better part of his life researching yeah. The Lord of the Rings and making these movies, and he spent the last five years planning The Hobbit, first with Guillermo del Toro, then on his own with his other collaborators, Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens. And obviously, they, there's no other reason to do this other than creative. I think people, a lot of people want to say, oh, Warner just wanted another movie for the money. The logistics of splitting this into three movies is so vast. You have no idea. They have to spend probably another two to three hundred million dollars to get this underway. Yes, they will probably make that back, but they don't know that. I can't imagine the studio would push for this if Peter Jackson didn't push for it first. Does that make sense? Yeah, and then also, I mean, you can be really skeptical of it, but all the stuff that's come out is basically from Peter Jackson. Yeah. Like, Peter Jackson saying, I want to do this. Yeah. It doesn't, like, just like reading all the press releases and everything doesn't make it feel like this is something that the studio's trying to do. Right. And I don't think it is, and I, you know, again, my whole stance on this, though, is that I don't know anything about the production of these movies. I, you know, I've seen some of the production blogs and stuff, but the story, how they're splitting it, what they've written, what they have yet to write, that's all a mystery. And so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt here, because they're not going to sit down and say, 
hmm, let's ask the studio for another $200 million and re-sign dozens of actors and re-license all these locations just because we think this could be a good idea. They have a plan. This yeah. is written out. Like, you know, I, I think it's been confirmed the script isn't finished yet for the third movie. Obviously, they haven't gotten that far yet, yeah. but they, haven't, they have a plan. They know what they're doing. Could it turn out to be a horrible idea? It could. Yeah. It could all, but there's no reason to think that yet. There's no evidence for the horrible idea path. There is, to me, evidence for Peter Jackson and the cast and crew have a passion for this material, and they have a lot of story to tell, and they want to do it now because if they don't, as he says in the statement, it'll get too late. This is the last chance to do this. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're never going to get to make the Silmarillion movie, for instance. I mean, I don't even know if you could. See, yeah, that would be that'd be but, really weird. But it still belongs to the Tolkien estate, and they're never going to sell it. And so it's just like, they have this material, they need to, They should do something with it. They should make it and sort of do this last definitive statement in Middle-earth. And I think, it's, I think that could be really cool. And after sort of that initial disorientation, I got really excited because some of the best film memories I have are the three years when The Lord of the Rings were coming out and waiting each year and just the excitement where you would finally see the new movie and then you'd have to wait, but it was a good kind of waiting because you just saw this great film. And now it's like, it wasn't like edge of your seat waiting. It was more like, I just, you know, I want more. This was mm-hmm. so good. And I think to be able to relive that now, ten years later, is going to be really neat. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious to get your opinion on this. Where do you think they're going to split up, at least just from, like, the strict Hobbit story? Yeah. Where do you think they're going to split up the movies? Well, as I understand it, film one is not changing at all under this. That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty much made. They're just doing post right now. And I think that splits it. Uh, where they do the barrels and they get into Lake Town. No, that's, that's, that's a bit further. I didn't realize that they were going to go all the way through all the Mirkwood stuff in one Yeah, movie. I guess, I guess, I don't know if, I think the Mirkwood stuff is really going to be like the climax, as I understand it, of film one. Hmm. And then sort of the barrels is sort of this last thing. But like, I know they've they've really embellished the Mirkwood stuff. Like, they've got Legolas there now. They've got some yeah. new elvish characters and there's going to be a big battle, which sounds really cool. So, I think that, that's what I've heard. I, I know they've had a poster with the barrels on it at Comic-Con. But in any case, I think probably film two, like I said, is still going to be this all the smog material, the Battle of Five Armies. They've apparently licensed the phrase the desolation of smog, and I think that's what they're going to rename film two. And then film three will be there and back again, and I think film three will mostly focus on the return journey and whatever other stories they want to tell in there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So because in my in my head, like the Hobbit is kind of split into like if I were going to split into the trilogy. That is kind of how I would do it, where I would probably... I mean, it's it kind of seems like you're pushing a lot of material, because that's the bulk of the novel is all the stuff, like, going through, like, the Misty Mountains and then going yeah. to Mirkwood. That's a lot oh, of The Hobbit. And so it's like, it seems like I would either try to, like, really embellish all the stuff and have the Misty Mountain stuff with, like, Gollum be sort of the climax of one movie, or you can push it all the way out to Mirkwood. But then also, sort of all the stuff, once they get to Lake Town and they've got, like, the Lonely Mountain smog, that's all sort of feels like its own section of the book because that's all, they've like gone through the journey and now they're dealing with the stuff while they're there. Yeah. And then the Battle of Five Armies is almost sort of like an epilogue in the book where it's like, this is now, we've got all this stuff and now all these these people are coming to try to take it and now we have to defend it. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, that's sort of how I would structure it out too. Okay. Um, but however they do it, I, I'm excited to see how they do it and I think it's going to be really cool. I think they've clearly made it Clear. They've made it clear this is going to have a different tone than Lord of the Rings. I'm excited to see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the trailers and some of the Comic-Con... They didn't really show any Comic-Con footage, but they did that Comic-Con production blog. 
uh, about the end of shooting. And just seeing the little snippets we've seen here and there, I think they've really captured the tone of The Hobbit, where it doesn't feel that different than Lord of the Rings, but enough where this is a, this is a simpler time. This is a mm-hmm. peaceful, a relatively peaceful. I mean, the, the story gets crazy, but I think that's another sort of virtue of doing it in multiple parts, is that the Hobbit story gets progressively darker until yeah. the end. I mean, people forget most of the dwarves die. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a dark no. ending. Yeah. And I think all of that in one movie might be a little jarring because it does start as a fairly happy-go-lucky piece because that's kind of who Bilbo is. That's yeah. who Gandalf... I mean, Gandalf's just a prankster asshole at the beginning <laughs> of The Hobbit. I, I always I always love the part at the beginning where he like they, they J.R.R. Tolkien really like lovingly describes Bilbo's door yes and it's like how like like how nice the door is and how important it is to Bilbo because it's like it's the thing that people see when they come to his hobbit hole and then Gandalf just takes his staff and just like scratches this big mark in it to it so the dwarves know what house to go to it's great and then he bangs on it to get the mark yeah. out I, I love that part of the book yep. So, I think that could be interesting because the tonal differences are also sort of like act breaks, mm-hmm. where the first movie may be sort of the lightest and the happiest, and maybe the most fun, and then you get darker and darker. Yeah, where then, like, Bilbo gets lost in Mirkwood Forest, and there are yeah. spiders trying to eat everybody. Right. Yeah, I mean, the book does get a lot darker as it goes on. And then I think that's also a good way to transition into Lord of the Rings, when you finally have this sort of six-film saga. By the end of the Hobbit trilogy, you're probably going to be at the tone Lord of the Rings opens at, mm-hmm. you know? So that could be really interesting. Um, and, you know, I just I want to spend more time in this universe. It's going to be cool. And yeah. uh, I'm excited for it. So, so am I. I'm, I'm totally yeah. with you. And, I mean, I can understand. I just don't understand the backlash. That's my main thing because it just seems unfounded to me. I get that it's counterintuitive for one book to be three movies. That is absolutely counterintuitive. But that's all the everything they've said, they've made it very clear they're not just adapting that book. And even even if we didn't know all that, I would not try to act like I have more information than the filmmakers. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it is like a lot of the people are just saying this, like, you can't possibly do this without, like, you, it's like, just you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know how they're splitting the movies. You don't know how much extra material they're handling. Yeah. It's like, you could, you could make five movies with all the just additional stuff that's going on. Yeah. It's like, you, there's so much extra content that you can, that there's there for you to flesh out with the original material. That yeah, it's like you can make you can make more than three movies with it. Honestly, I mean, I'm excited to see if they could do stories that are sort of unrelated with the Hobbit and somehow weave it in. Like, is there any way they can do a Baron and Luthien flashback and talk about that in context of this story? I doubt it. Yeah, that would be kind of weird. I don't would know. Be weird. I don't know what the point of that would be without Aragorn. Like, right. Well, I, who knows? They could be getting Viggo Mortensen back for a cameo. I don't know. It, you know, there's limitless possibilities to me, and I am. I just I went on this massive Twitter rant about this when the announcement was made and everyone was making you know all the fanboys were going crazy about it and it's just like you're getting more of your favorite movie like mm-hmm. shut the fuck up and wait if it's bad it's bad if it's good it's good you don't know yet yeah for the love of God yes, yes. anyway so that's the, the Hobbit calm down I know and and I mean it doesn't even change the release schedule we get the movie in you know less than 6 months now mm-hmm. it's coming faster than you know it seems and I'm so excited for it so it's going to be awesome in any case um so that's the hobbit we're now going to transition into our main topic of the podcast the main main topic topic yes we want to talk about red versus blue season 10 so, just really quick, Sean, what have you thought of the new season of Rooster Teeth's Red vs. Blue so far? We are halfway through. Uh, I'm I'm really enjoying it. I'm really excited about sort of the direction they're going in with it, because 
they're getting a lot more into the very sci-fi aspects of it that they've that have always been there in Red versus Blue because they're there in Halo, but they haven't really sort of like delved into it because the last the season the freelancer story in season nine was very much just dealing with the freelancers. But now that they're getting their AI in season ten and seeing what they're doing with the AI, I think is really interesting. And, and it connects it back around to the original story of yeah, Red and it's just Blue. like. And then also, I've been reading. I, I've I'm a big Halo. I'm a, I mean, I'm a huge Halo nerd. I, I read the books. I, I read the comic books, and I obviously play the games a lot. And I've kind of gotten a, a pretty big backlog on the expanded universe novels that have come out for Halo. So I've been reading through uh, Karen Travis's Halo Glasslands that I think is really good. And they've got an AI character that she focuses on a lot, like how the AI work in the Halo universe, and it sort of feels like. I know Bernie Burns, the head writer for Red vs. Blue, is also obviously a massive Halo fan. He reads the books, too, and it feels like he's sort of... It almost feels like it's more incorporated into the Halo fiction than it ever has been before in a kind of a weird way. Where it's obviously not like Halo continuity, but they're staying true to sort of how this is... I mean, this is in the Halo video game, and they're sort of taking elements from that universe, but then putting their own twists on it. I find that really interesting. Yep. Um, I've loved season 10. I think I reserve the right to change my opinion because there were things in the most recent episode, episode 9, that bothered me a little bit. Yeah, the most but, recent episode wasn't the best. No. But the first eight, at least, I think is possibly the best just sustained creative run the show has ever had. And I don't say that to disparage any other part of the show because I thought they could never top season 6, Reconstruction. I love Reconstruction. If I, I could put that on a list of like my top 100 favorite movies, it's that good. And this has just been kicking its ass. It's so good. And like the characters are so well-drawn at this point. Mm-hmm. Are well-drawn, well, well-defined. They're also well-animated, obviously, because the animation portions, which we'll talk about in a little bit, have been out of this world. And just incredible. But... I, I'm really been enjoying the show this season. I think exactly what Sean just said. I'm really satisfied with where they're going with Project Freelancer. And I think that's where I want to start our bigger discussion about this is when we talked about the show, this was actually on the Monthly Stuff podcast, an old podcast we did. We talked about the older seasons of Red vs. Blue. And I said season nine sort of disappointed me because I thought neither side of the story, they did the Freelancer story and then the faux Blood Gulch story, mm-hmm. and I thought neither side had a very strong narrative thrust. I, I liked being immersed in the Freelancer's world, but it just felt sort of like an introduction to me. Yeah. And they've really paid off on that. And that's what was important, is that season 10, there's a real story and narrative thrust to the freelancer stuff. It feels like the action isn't just there for action's sake anymore. It's really, there's always a story and narrative purpose behind it. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes character motivation and, and development going on through that. I feel like we're getting to know, especially Agent Carolina, better through the action scenes. And so I've really been enjoying the freelancer material. And then over on the other side, I think the narrative thrust of the present-day storyline is really good, too. So it's just like, it's the best of every possible world for Red vs. Blue. So... I agree, and I think think the sort of the right, like, the more humorous side of it is more up to par, where in in Season 9, sort of the Blood Gulch stuff was still funny... But it wasn't it felt like, a little tired. Yeah, and it was it wasn't nearly as funny as some of their yeah. older stuff. And now a lot of their, the, the, I mean, we're only halfway through the season, and they still have 
like a lot of their jokes are some of my favorite jokes on the show right now. Oh, absolutely. They've been there. There was stuff in the first episode that was just screamingly funny with Church coming back as you know the AI and 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 just learning that he had been replaced by Washington. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hilarious. It just feels like every part of the show this year has been so fine tuned. And when you talk about humor, I definitely think there's a virtue to having the Reds and Blues on the road at this point. I think that's funnier than the old classic Blood Gulch setup. I think mm-hmm. that's what makes it a little tired, is when they're constrained to a single location, I think it's less funny than when they are out of their element. And they've been out of their element this season, and it's great. Yeah, and it sort of feels like a season four, where they're constantly yeah. moving somewhere. Right. Yeah. And, um, and having Carolina there as a personality, both to connect these two sides of the equation, which that's really key, I think, is having the, the one character who does connect both of them and is sort of central. Um, and, and having Washington, I guess Washington is the same too. Yeah. But anyway, having Carolina playing off the red versus blue, the Reds and Blues is very funny. It's a little reminiscent of the initial Washington dynamic. Yeah. But she's much more hard ass than Agent Washington, and so it's, it's there's a lot of good jokes from that. Um, but what else do you want to talk about? I mean, I I I, I really want to talk about the animation because I do think it. that's it's... sort of the star of the season to me. It is absolutely. I think we we joked about how in the in our old podcast about Red vs. Blue, that if Season 8 was done with one animator, and Season 9 was done with two, and there was that big a jump between Seasons 8 and 9, mm-hmm. now that they have a 10-person animation staff, what was Season 10 going to look like? Still surpassed our expectations. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean... It's movie quality. It really is completely insane to me that they can put out content like this on the internet, because it's just, it's so far ahead of what any other sort of content provider is doing. It's exclusively for the internet. Yeah. And it's just, it's still completely mind-blowing, especially sort of some of the earlier episodes where they were on the space stations and out in space. Some of the animation was just so beautiful, and, like, the art design was so well done. Oh, yeah. I think one of the things that's really made this season stand out is that they're not using any sort of pre-built Halo sets. It's all custom animated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really showing what the animators at Rooster Teeth can do just as design artists. Yeah. Um, Again, like, just... I remember being blown away by the first episode of this season, which was just, it was just York in in the building, and it wasn't, you know, a fairly elaborate set, but it was so cool to see how well-designed it was. And then when, you know, the season starts and he's blown out into space and you see what's to come, uh, it blew my mind. I mean, just the little things, the little details that they can do are great. And then, of course, all the stuff in the, the space graveyard, basically. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, it's just getting one of the cool things especially about being such a Halo nerd, is that they their art design is like, yeah, they're, they're unique, but they take elements from the sort of established Halo fiction. Yeah. And it's just, like, so cool because they're, like, they, like, have their own sort of design for the UNSC battleships, but they're clearly inspired from the stuff that they brought from the Halo games. Yeah. It's just cool to see. It's sort of like they've somehow become, like, this weird, like, expanded universe stuff that's, like, in this, like, parallel universe to the actual... Halo universe. It's yeah. really like the, the how like it's like got this action sci-fi. Like it's legitimately good action sci-fi without it. I mean, the, obviously the comedy is great too. Yeah, it's a key part of it. But they could make just an action sci-fi show and it would work. Like they've oh, yeah. proven there are a- episodes that are basically straight action that are phenomenal. Oh yeah. And so it's so weird to me. Just like its status in relationship to like the legitimate Halo fiction now is so well, kind of weird. It is, and it's it's so interesting because you talk about it being legitimate action sci-fi, and it feels like we're almost going on a second cycle through Red vs. Blue's life, where in the Blood Gulch Chronicles at its peak, in like seasons three and four, that was sitcom at its best. That, yeah. was, just a, that was one of the best sitcoms 
airing in the United States of America for that time period. And now it's gone through this transistory period where it's one of the best action sci-fi stories being told. It may be the best because there's so little sci-fi in America right now. Yeah. You know? And in terms of sci-fi shows that are airing, the only other one I would say is, you know, objectively better is Doctor Who. And it's like, that's incredible company yeah. to be in. <laughs> I, I know, it's just, it's completely insane to me. Because just to see their, like, sort of like their rise to power, because it's, it's ten years. It's like, and, and in internet time, that's kind of forever. It is. But you get to see how much benefit that forever does on the internet. Like, it's... Where they started from is so completely insane to where they are now. Like, it's just... I know. I mean, it would be like us transforming this podcast into, like, the highest-rated cable news show of all time. Yeah, it's like, it's like all of a sudden we're the Colbert Report. Yeah. In ten years. Right. It's, it's just, I don't, I don't understand how it's possible that they were able to do this, but I, I can't see anyone else on the internet... The only, like, other thing that's kind of like that is, like, indie games on the internet yeah. with, like, PC games, where they've, they, where it's much easier and there's a market for it now and sort of, like, Kickstarter's helping that out. Where it's, like, that's gotten this, like, huge push that the internet has really allowed to happen. And there's a lot of content on the internet that I really enjoy, but it's nowhere near as developed and evolved as what Red vs. Blue has become, especially of just, like, straight narrative fiction instead of just sort of, like, funny, ranty videos. Oh, Absolutely. And, you know, Bernie Burns, the head of Rooster Teeth and director of Red vs. Blue, he loves to talk about on the podcast that finding a way to show your content is not the difficulty on the internet. If you can create good content, people will come. And Red vs. you know, that seems like you hear it and you're like, that's naively optimistic, but that's what Red vs. Blue has proven. Yeah. It's proven that if you just, if you are talented and you put your best work into it and you do as good a job as you can, people will find it. And they've found it in flocks, and they, they are consistently rewarded for doing good work. They've never turned in something mediocre and and been rewarded for it. I yeah. think they've very much, they've pushed themselves, and that's that's actually inspired me and my own internet work, where, you know, I started my own site last year and stuff, and it was, I think I had probably the courage to do something that audacious and leave the, the Denver Post site I was writing for, because I felt, you know, if I can just do my best work, people will find it, and I think that's something that's very true, and I think Red vs. Blue has demonstrated that better than any internet entity of all time. Yeah, I mean, and just like the framework of the internet has changed so much, where they started before, like, YouTube was a thing. Right. I mean, it's it's so weird to think about. There's, there's this thing on the internet where even though websites will have, like, a lifespan of, like, three to four years... You know, other than, like, like maybe, like, big news sites that are, like, sort of, like, have their foundations in the real world. Yeah. Those sort of sites have a longer lifespan. But most websites only have a lifespan of, like, three to four years. But people become so attached to them, they don't realize, I have only been using this site for, like, two years right now. And in one year, I will probably move on to something else and forget that this ever even existed. And eventually, you, like, it, the framework might be changing a bit for the internet now. I, I it's, it's hard to tell. But... Someday YouTube might not be a thing. Facebook might not be a yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, Facebook's surely not going to be a thing in right. a while. Twitter, I mean, I think Twitter's got a bit more to go, but Twitter's going to die out eventually. Like, YouTube's the only one that I'm not entirely sure how, if it's going to quite go away. But if it does, there are a lot of people who basically make their living just on YouTube and are entirely attached to YouTube. And if YouTube sort of just, like, loses... Like like another website comes out and YouTube loses what they have if they have a hugely unsuccessful IPO or something like that yeah or if, yeah, if they just like change their website design and make it really unappealing and frustrating to use like they do every single time they change their website 
it's it's like you're going to end up there's going to be people who basically lose their jobs because they're going to lose their audience when they try to transition to another site and that's one of the key things about rooster teeth is that they have their core site that they have a million plus people who are just tied to their site that will always go to their content but then they also kick out content to youtube and they kick out content to blip and they use twitter and they use facebook but they have this central hub and i think that's such a cool thing that that still lasts today, that they still have that hub where most people will stick to YouTube, or they will, they will use, they'll just use YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and they won't have their own dedicated site, or if they do have their own dedicated site, it's not what they're, they're, that's not what they're trying to do, they're not trying to, like, make that the best site possible and bring people to that site, they're using that to funnel people to YouTube. Yeah. It's such an, it's such an interesting development, because the internet's still such a new thing, and it seems to me like Rooster Teeth is are the, they're like one of the very few companies who really understands how to use the internet to deliver their content and to keep people coming to their content. And I think a lot of people need to kind of learn from their example instead of tying themselves to these hub sites that make them entirely reliant on something like YouTube. Absolutely, I think that's totally true. And um, yeah, so let's 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 recenter this discussion back to the show itself. Okay, um, that was a, I mean. As tangents go, that was one of our better tangents. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all related. If people, all haven't, related, if yeah. people haven't listened to our monthly stuff, yeah. Mr. Teeth Podcast, I think it's content so it's, worth listening to. It absolutely is. Uh, but let's talk about the show again. One of the things I wanted to talk about is how much, how good this show is done at creating just good episodic drama, too. Where in, I've talked about this before, where... One of my only big critical issues with Red vs. Blue over the years is I never quite liked watching it week to week. I thought there was only a couple seasons here and there where each week felt satisfying, but like especially season 7, 8, and 9 were very frustrating week to week. I thought it was it was sort of like having a movie and getting five minute chunks and then it was like, that doesn't feel satisfying on its own, but you would put it all together and it would be great. Every episode of season 10 has been excellent, mm-hmm. and it hasn't left me... It's left me wanting to see the next part of the story, but it didn't leave me going, well, gee, that was an unsatisfying episode. I've gotten to the end of every episode feeling like that was worth the week-long wait. That yeah. was great, you know? I, I think it's also... The, it's, it feels to me like they've sort of made their episodes on average longer oh, they than are. they used to be. I'm uh, looking at the lengths here. They're all over five minutes, and the last couple have all been over seven. Yeah, I mean, I... I the long... I think... I think in season three, they had, like, I think it was, like, episode 50 was a really long episode. I think it might have been almost 10 minutes, but there's, like... I think it was 17 minutes. I can look that up, but it was, like, oh, a it's, it's even longer than that. Yeah, let's look it up. But what were you going to say about it? But yeah, I just say this, like, it seems interesting to me that they're they're kind of, like, pushing... They're, holy crap, yeah, it's 16 minutes and 29 seconds. That's a lot longer than I remembered it being. But on the whole, I mean, you look through the season three time chart, they're all like three, four, whatever, and then there's a couple that are longer. And they're they're dramatically longer, but um, that's because of the episode 50 fallout, which was such a huge story. But then they go back right to four minutes, five, you know. Yeah, and it seems like they've just like progressively been making the episodes longer and longer. And like, yeah. it's, it feels like they're understanding that like they're... Like, their dramatic content needs a lot more time to breathe than the yeah. comedic content, where it's like, especially with the original Blood Gulch Chronicles, where it was basically straight comedy, five-minute chunks of just comedy works, fine, yeah. works really well. But, it's, but yeah, once you start delivering more dramatic action-based content, yeah, I feel like they they finally realized how much time that really needs to breathe yeah. in an episode. 
And I, I, you know, I never need them to be making like 45 minute episodes each week or something, but I do think they've definitely learned a little bit from like cable TV model or something where you can have these great serialized stories, but each chunk can be on its own memorable and excellent, you know. Mm-hmm. I usually, I tend to think of Red vs. Blue seasons just as seasons, but season 10, I can definitely point out, I'm like, yeah, episode 3, holy shit, isn't that yeah. the one where they're like in the... Yeah, I mean, that's that's where the big action sequence happens in the hangar, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's just some of that stuff. They're really memorable, and they're really good. And that, that all really impresses me. So, the other thing I want to talk about with the animation is, I think the character animation is so improved, and that's more subtle than some of the environmental stuff. Yeah. But just the freelancers themselves... They move really realistically now. And yeah. I really like the movement on them. And, and especially the one thing that in the prior animation stuff that always felt a little off with how they animated the freelancers is that it de- never felt like they were like attached to their environment. And this yeah. is like a really common issue with animation. So I'm I, I know nothing about animation, so I'm sure it's a really difficult thing to get is like having like that character feel like they're attached to that world where it kind of felt like when they're walking it's almost a little glidey. Like yeah. their feet aren't really hitting the ground and now I don't get that sensation anymore. There's so much weight to the animation this yeah. year. Um, I, and which is funny because the big, the, my favorite action sequence of the year so far happened in anti-gravity mm-hmm. where they're like kicking cars around and stuff. But even then you have to master weight to show how those things move and impact. And that's just, that scene to me is like throwing down the gauntlet and saying we can do anything now. Yeah. And and then when they go out with their jetpacks into the space graveyard and there's junk everywhere and just the amount of detail they had to animate like I've been making it, you know, an effort de- every time I I make sure to watch it in HD on my laptop, which I didn't in the past because I would just sort of sometimes it wasn't necessarily worth it. It's just yeah. the cinema. But now it's like the level of detail. I want to freeze frame and look at this stuff. It's so gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's just it still just completely blows my mind that people can make this content just like on the internet and then yeah. be wildly successful with it. Yeah. And here's a funny thing about the animation, is that now, obviously, the Machinima portions, they've gone back to the Halo 3 engine, which I think was the proper choice, both for a continuity aspect, and I think it looks better for film than Reach yeah. did. It is, like, the Halo 3 graphics, even though they're le- not, not as high fidelity yeah. by any stretch of the imagination as the Reach engine does, yeah. they sort of pop more, and the yeah. characters feel more distinct. But here's what's funny. Their in-house animation looks better than the Halo 3 engine now. Yeah. Me. Like I mean, there's, if you look at it, there's sort of jagged edges and aliasing and stuff on the Machinima content, and then in the animation, it's flawless. Yeah. It's just beautiful. And that's really interesting to me. And obviously some of that just comes from when you're pre-rendering everything. Yeah. It's different than... But still... And Halo 3 is like a five-year-old game now. Right. But still, that's a five-year-old game made by hundreds of people at like mm-hmm. one of the most advanced software companies in the nation, and Red vs. Blue is animated by 10 to 20 people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It, it is, it's Imagine if they get to, like, 50 animators. They'll, I'm pretty sure they'll, like, animate stuff that the human eye can't perceive at that point. Yeah, and it's one of the cool things about the design elements is that they... Like, their design for the freelancer stuff is very clearly based off of Halo 3. I mean, they're because the sort of the standard Mark VI Spartan armor is the Halo 3 style, because right. Halo Reach had a very different sort of armor style, because it was much more customizable. But it's really cool to see how... For certain characters, they will take in, like, Halo Reach armor designs and stuff, and then sort of, like, make that how it would look in the Halo 3 graphics engine. I think that's really interesting, since they don't have to 
tie all those characters into character models in Machinima, that they're able to play with the character designs a lot, and they're able to take stuff from other Halo games and put it into character designs that look like it's, this would be in the Halo 3 game. Well, uh, one of my favorite examples there is the all the guards in this most recent arc they're doing where they're trying to go find CT. Mm-hmm. Um, all the guards with sort of like, some of them have their arms showing, and they've all got these weird masks. Yeah, like the ODST type. Yeah. So it's, like, it's like a base ODST armor, but they like really played with the design and, like, throw on all these little Those guys look cool and they look intimidating, and that's actually something that I think was lacking in earlier seasons was finding villains for the Freelancers who look intimidating on some level. Mm -hmm. These guys actually do. There's actually some threat there that I like, Um, even though they've worked in some spectacular gags into the action. Like, I have, I don't know if I've ever laughed at Red vs. Blue as, I, as hard as I did in episode 8 when York's idea to take out the guys is throw the bubble shield and he shoots and the bullet takes all of them out and it fills with blood. <laughs> yeah, uh, like that, that, I love that because it reminds me of... Uh, I mean, I played so much Halo 3 back in the day and I remember I was playing double team with my friend Kurt and it's like a 2v2 yeah. online and we were playing on, on the map. Uh, it's Blackout in Halo 3, the remake of Lockout. And Kurt had the bubble shield, and there was this one guy who was sniping at me, and he was sort of over at, like, you know, where the grav lift is, kind of like in the shotgun area, and the grav lift comes up, and there's that little sort of, like, open space. Yeah. And he was sniping at me, and I was sort of on the battle rifle tower. And I was like, Kurt, Kurt, I'm getting sniped. Can you help me out? Kurt's like, okay. And he just, like, chucks the bubble shield onto that area, and the bubble shield, like, deploys where that guy, like, on top, basically, of the guy. And it's, like, the perfect size that it covered, like, that platform that he was on. So he couldn't do anything. He's just, since he can't shoot outside the bubble shield, he's just sort of, like, standing there, and he's like, crap. And then he just sort of, like, walks away. And it's like, thanks, Kurt. That was really clever. Well, it's funny, because we've all had moments like that playing Halo 3 when they started introducing all these new elements, Mm -hmm. and again, to see that brought back into the Red vs. Blue universe, and see how creative they can be with some of that, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just great. And it's the kind of stuff that works, you know, if you don't play Halo, you can still enjoy this 100%. Yeah. But those are little touches where you you do have those connections to when you played games like that, and it's so much fun. There's just a sense of community there around Halo. Mm -hmm. So, uh, anything else to talk about with the freelancers? I think... Definitely the characters feel so well-developed this year. Mm-hmm. Like, any scene with York, I love scenes with York. They could do a fucking York spin-off show, I'd watch it. Yeah, cool. I, I, I love I love all the characters. I really like, yeah. uh, it's North Dakota's the guy. He's yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really like him. Even though, like, it's kind of weird how those, like, I don't think North was, but, like, South Dakota and those characters, that how it started out in Recovery 1. Yeah. It was, like, that five-episode miniseries. And then having her, she was in Reconstruction, and then, like, seeing her pass and realizing it's like, this is... We're like we've like met a lot of these characters like York. We met in Out of Mind just forever yeah. ago, and sort of like how these characters are all sort of like connecting. And you sort of see where a lot of their character traits come from. Well, and this is something that's interesting to talk about is that prequels usually fail because there's no dramatic tension. We know where they're going. Mm-hmm. Here, what's great is that this is actually a tragedy in motion. We know a lot of these characters we like right now. They'll they're gonna die horrible. Yeah, deaths. yeah. Like we've seen them die. That's, in that's the what miniseries. I love North Dakota. He's a great character, but part of what's sad about that is we know South's gonna kill him in cold blood in a random act of violence. Yeah, and that's that's the start of a whole era of red versus blue mm-hmm. and this is just before that and they're all ignorant of it but that sort of that twinge of regret is there in the viewer yeah and it's really interesting at how far south is going to fall mm-hmm. and that ct is going to ultimately become get a, like a sex change or something and I, 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 I think she dies and someone yeah, takes her armor i don't right. think she gets, it's, I, it's, I, this I isn't prometheus don't be crazy i know anyway 
Yeah, we need to like devote a segment to every podcast of making fun of Prometheus. <laughs> anyway, um, well, they're making a Prometheus sequel. I know. I saw a great tweet yesterday. Someone said if Damon Lindelof had written the Mars rover Curiosity landing, uh, it would the story would end with all the uh, like NASA engineers crying that they didn't find life in the first five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> like I wanted to, I wanted to talk to the aliens. I'm going to get wasted. Anyway, back to Red vs. Blue. But I love those characters and, and sort of where their stories are going to go. Um, the other, I mean, obviously Washington, his, he doesn't have like a sad ending, but it is sort of funny to see him in his happier days. Yeah, it's like, it, it, I think we, we talked about this on the, our other Red vs. Blue podcast, but I still love sort of the contrast of Washington when he's with the freelancers as opposed to when he was just with the Red and Blues and Reconstruction, because compared to the Red and Blues, he's really serious. Like, he's a super serious character, and that was sort of one of the trademarks of Reconstruction in Recovery 1, was that it was much more dramatic, and he was sort of like the dramatic art, like, like anchor for those storylines. But then, if you take him and contrast him with the other freelancers, he's the funny, happy, jokey one. Yeah. And it's really funny just to see how, since the Red and Blues are so completely ridiculous, him in relation to them, he seems like the most serious dude on the planet. But then when you go and re-watch Reconstruction, you realize... He actually is kind of he's he's an actually he's a funny guy. He's like, always making quips. He's sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. and so he's still like that in yeah. the freelancer stories. But it's your perspective on the character has changed based on who he's around. And it's really interesting how the character himself is completely the same, but he seems completely different because of his surroundings. And kudos to Shannon McCormick for selling that so yeah. well. He's got had some comic highlights this year. I've really loved. But um, uh, the other character is Wyoming. I'm so glad we're getting more Wyoming now because that was one of my favorite characters in the original Bud Gulch Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Mostly just because Matt Hullum's funny British accent was so bad, and it's just it's it's such so, a great so voice. terrible. But it's such a fun voice, yeah. and I think it's very funny how he's reworked it for this season because now he's a character again. Yeah, and it's just he's been very proper. He's not full on evil yet, so he yeah. hasn't become you know Doctor Evil from Austin Powers. He's yeah. just. He's just a guy with a proper accent who's a little goofy, and and I, I can't. I hope they do more with him and push him in yeah, that direction. I, based on some stuff that came out of RTX, I, I heard there's like going to be an episode that's basically a Wyoming episode. That's great. I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be great. And, I also uh, love there's like you got like a brief glimpse at his character design out like out with the helmet off, which is one of the very few characters that we've seen with like mostly full armor because he was in the old show and seen what he looks like with his helmet off. He's got this like ridiculously massive mustache. I love that. that. I love. That made me laugh so hard. That was one of those freeze frame moments. Like yeah, they really was, just like wait, who's that guy with the? Is that Wyoming? Of course he would have a villain mustache. Yeah, would twirl he's just, like, like this giant fuck off mustache. It's awesome. Um, and of course the character you have to talk about is the meta and his AI Sigma mm-hmm. and they've done a really great job pushing him in the direction the meta where he's going to be obviously in the main continuity mm-hmm. as a villain but uh, Sigma is a really interesting character to me and it's not just because he's voiced by Elijah Wood this is actually yeah. creepy antagonist yeah. but he's not an antagonist yet I just assume he's going yeah, to be he's, I mean, he, he's made of fire he's right. going to be the antagonist but it's a phenomenal design he looks cool and then Elijah Wood Kudos to him. Great voice work. Just very yeah. calm. Ex- just exuding evil everywhere. It's yeah, what's really... kind of cool about it is that it doesn't... Like, if you didn't know it was Elijah Wood, I don't think you would really be able to tell. No. Because partially because they have a lot of filters over the voice since he's an AI. But it's also the way he delivers it. It doesn't sound like... An, a li- like, it's not Frodo. No. Like, it's very... He's like this very calm, but very sinister character. Right. And, you know, I think people have sort of 
typecast Elijah Wood since Lord of the Rings, which is too bad, because he's a great actor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, hey, if it's Red vs. Blue that lets him sort of stretch those sort of dramatic villain muscles, so be it. It's not, that's not working down or anything. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I just think it's really cool. And I wonder if they're, in the future they'll be able to use actors of this caliber, too, because... You know, I think there's plenty of actors... You know, you don't need to get, like, George Clooney for Red vs. Blue to get a great actor. There's tons of actors at Elijah Wood's levels who are ex all great, who could do great voice work, mm -hmm. and uh, are very into the Austin film scene, which is how they sort of got to know Austin, you know, yeah. Elijah Wood. So, kudos to them. Uh, I really like Elijah Wood's work, especially in Episode Nine, which just came out. That yeah. was, to me, the highlight where he's talking to the other freelancers and to Delta. Mm -hmm. um, really good work there. Um, otherwise, I do want to talk about episode 9 a little bit, because this was the only episode that had some warning signs flashing for me, mm -hmm. and it was, I actually liked all the freelancer material at the beginning and end. I thought that was all solid, it was good, it was a little more action, like, and it was more focused on action than narrative, but I was okay with that, because we're in the middle of an arc. Yeah. We just haven't, they have to get there to get to the next part of the story, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But it was actually the parts with the red and blues that felt... Like, that was sort of, like, spinning their wheels until the next part of that story. Like, they are in a holding pattern until something happens with Carolina and Washington. Did you mm -hmm. get that at all? Uh, I mean, yeah, that's but that's sort of, like, that doesn't really bug me with the red and blue thing, because I feel next episode is going to be episode 10. I think Tex is going to pop up. And my guess is Tex is going to pop up in both of the storylines, because she had, like, a cameo in episode 9. Right. But to me, actually, my the thing that I didn't necessarily like so much about episode 9 is that, to me, I don't know what it was, but the action segments didn't feel like they had as much impact to me. No, they didn't, and I think it's exactly what I said, is the, does the narrative thrust, I wasn't feeling as much. Yeah, I, and I, I, I'm not sure if it's quite that. I think there's just something about, just like, the action sequences themselves. I think there's, like, there, like it just felt a little bit off to me. Like, yeah. I felt like, and it might just be because they... Like, they haven't been able to put as, just, just as much time into it, because the other action sequences just felt like, there was just like it just felt like there was a lot more impact to the animation itself, and the animation felt a little less high quality to me. There the were moments one. I really liked. I think everything with the one-on-one -on -one fights between the meta and his opponent and Carolina and hers, mm -hmm. I liked that stuff. Some of the yeah. stuff surrounding it, I agree with you on. Uh, and then the stuff at the end, I agree. I think some of the stuff where it's just the turrets. Yeah, yeah, the stuff with the turrets, especially like the it's like the turrets didn't feel like they had a lot of impact, and like just like that whole like ending sequence. It's just like, yeah. if there's something about that, about that just kind of felt off to me. It definitely felt like sort of them going into sort of a less good sort of habit they've had in the past where when they're getting into the middle of the season, they have to have an episode that's sort of, that's sort of just setting, putting things into place and it's not mm -hmm. as satisfying. Yeah. And again, in episode 10, you're right, it's going to be the text episode, that's their tradition, and I'm sure it's going to be great because that's, it's usually preceded by an episode that isn't that good. Yeah. So, you know, so be it. On the DVD and everything, this will be just ten minutes out of a two-hour movie. So yeah, and then, and, and then in context with, like, the rest of it, I'm, it's probably going to work really well. And my other like, complaint... Yeah, just the episode itself. The other thing is, episode, between eight and nine, terrible place to put a PSA. Yeah. Terrible place yeah. to take a week off. I, I would actually be more okay with them taking a week off between episodes nine and ten, because... Eight, I don't know, it was just something about that. That was the middle of an action sequence. And, and it was the most frustrating thing about it was that episode eight ended at the spot where their trailer yes. ends... So it's like, because the trailer ends with, like, Maine comes down and the ODST pod comes out and Sigma's yeah. like, sick him. And then that's how their trailer ends. And so it's like, I've seen that scene, like, a dozen times, and then having that be the end of the episode, and then having to wait. And also, like, uh, the, the, their last, the Higgs boson PSA wasn't bad, but their other PSA I thought was really unfunny. I thought so, too. I did not like it at all. It Especially was... because it was because they've all, I mean, they made a joke about it in the PSA, 
But they they did an internet rules PSA like around season two, and yeah. that was it's hysterically funny. But that was like, great, yeah, yeah. But it's there's like and there's so much more material now because the internet's so different. But they just like kind of just remade the same PSA. No, it didn't. It didn't click for me. I did not like it. I didn't laugh at it once. The pigs bows on one. I, I laughed at all of Caboose's stuff, and it had yeah. a good ending with Caboose making. Yeah, yeah. That it speech. Was, I thought it was yeah the Caboose stuff where he somehow understands it in a weird way. I thought that that aspect of it was really funny, but most of the PSA wasn't. No, where it's like usually their PSAs are really funny. Although most of their uh, recent PSAs yeah. aren't great. Like it's mostly their older PSAs that I think are really really. Good. Oh, absolutely! Like they put up for the Mars rover Curiosity landing, they reposted their one from like season one. Of <laughs> where, they, where, where they use all the Mars rovers as like skateboards. That's and a stuff. comedy classic. It's That's great. great. And, yeah. and I, I, I just think it's sort of like the same thing that happens with sort of the typical blood gulch structure is that's something they've been doing for so long without much modulation, it's tired. Yeah. And I think I would prefer it if for these special videos they move away from sort of the PSA format and just find something sort of new to do with it. Yeah, because it definitely, yeah, I, I agree. It feels like, it almost kind of feels like what happened with their RT shorts where it's just yeah. like they don't, like they like they had a lot of really good ideas when they started doing them, but once you keep on doing it, it's just like they kind of like lose a bit of their passion for it, and it's like just like the one-off ideas don't work as well as they used to. Yeah, I agree. Um, but on the whole, what have you thought of the Red and Blue Machinima storyline so far? Uh, I've really liked it. I mean, the not it doesn't feel like a lot has happened in it yet. Yeah. I feel like they're really building up. For I think I think I think episode ten is going to be a really big episode that there's going to be a big reveal and that's going to be sort of what drives the rest of the plot because yeah. I think well, I'm I'm most interested to see what's going to happen with Sigma because I think because that's the character that has the most mystery around it yeah. around him to me because you know that he's obviously going to sort of like he's going to be a catalyst yeah and he's going to cause like all the main to become the meta and I think like it, Sigma's probably still around in the modern day storyline somewhere. So I'm really curious to see what happens with that character, and I think that's going to sort of yeah. be the main thrust of the plot. But right now, it does sort of feel like they're kind of just wandering around, waiting for the big reveals in the other storyline so that they can do the big reveals in the modern storyline. Sort no. of like with what happens to CT. Where yeah. It's like, you can't have... like That's like why the, the episode 9, they, they're in the desert to look to find like CT's armor, but you, since we don't know what happens to CT in the past, they don't. It feels like they can't spoil it in the modern day storyline. So that's why this is sort of like, well, we have to have these characters here right now. Well, and that's one criticism I would make is I don't think they should feel obliged to have each set of characters in every episode. Like if episode nine just needs to be getting to the CT reveal in the past, that's yeah. fine. You don't. Need yeah, to I, I agree. There. I think there's been a few times where it felt like the episode because I think maybe not every single episode, but definitely most of them have had segments. In both the past and in the present timelines. And I would be okay if they had to leave one or the other away for a week. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm totally with you, because yeah. I think that would help some of the pacing. Especially with, like, I mean, I it might work a lot better with, like, an overall structure. It's really hard to tell. Yeah. But, like, but watching it as a movie instead of episode by episode. But who knows? Yeah. So, you know... She's really good so far. I uh, maybe next week, if episode ten is as big as we're expecting, we'll we'll touch on it in yeah. the next podcast, just because we might want to. So, in any case, great season so far. It could very well turn out to be their very best. I think there's there's so much that has to happen here if this is really where they're going to wrap up the freelancer story. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they can even do it in just another half a season, like especially the stuff with Washington and his AI. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- th- there is so there are so many little story things just based on what's happened. Yeah. Since they've had, so I mean, eight plus like half of another season. 
yeah. building up all those other sort of story threads, especially like, I mean, we haven't even had O'Malley or Omega right. come in yet. Texas AI. So it's yeah. like all those characters need to get AIs. Well, and I do wonder if, you know, Bernie and Rooster Teeth have been completely genuine when they say this is sort of the wrap-up, or if that's sort of a misnomer and it's going to wrap up in some sense, but it's just going to launch into a new phase of story afterwards, which I'd be fine with. Yeah. But it could be really... I, I think this could be I've, This could be as much of a turning point season as it is a sort of end season, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, because especially with how se- uh, season 9 was structured, it almost has a sort of trilogy feel to me. Yeah. Where season 9 was like an introduction yeah. to this universe, then this one's like, yeah, this is sort of like the turning point, and yeah. then another season would deal with the aftermath. Although yeah. they could do all of that in like a present timeline. Who knows? They could. So it'll be really interesting. And um, you know, one last thing to talk about with the two-storyline approach, even though I do agree that the modern-day story stuff hasn't moved as well as the past, mm-hmm. I do like that they're connected this year. Yeah, especially, which, yeah. Which is, was my biggest complaint about Season 9, is they had the two stories, you really could have cut them apart, and they wouldn't have had anything to do with each other. Mm-hmm. This year, I really feel... And it's not just because Carolina's there. There's yeah, other, but yeah, because they're looking for CT. Right. And like, the right now, in the past storyline, it's all about what's going on with CT. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely... They're like definite story threads and you can see that it's like yeah. something's going to happen in the past storyline that's definitely going to yeah. define what they're doing right now in the present one. The other thing I want to mention is I'm really excited that they're releasing the show on Blu-ray for the first time this year because I think the animation deserves it to yeah. have the high-def treatment. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited. They're actually going to they're gonna have a box set of all ten seasons on Blu-ray. It's expensive, but I'm going to have to drop the money because those the remasters they did on the early season look great on DVD, but I think they could look even better in HD. And I'm I really want to see also mainly eight and nine in HD too. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited for all that. They've they've put together a 14 disc box set of the whole <laughs> series. That's pretty incredible, huh? Yeah. So I mean, it's pretty incredible that you can make a show on the internet in the last ten years. I know. It could last ten more. Who it's, knows? That's like a million years in internet time. It's, it is. It's ridiculous. It is. It's like. You know, an ant's lifespan versus a human's or something. Yeah. It's like it's just so different. We can't even comprehend, but it's so yeah. The internet's a weird place and Red versus Blue has they've somehow navigated it all this time and that's crazy. And they've become kings of the internet as far as I'm concerned. Now, let's talk about what is Rooster Teeth's true crowning achievement at the moment, what we really want to talk about. And that's Nature Town. <laughs> Fucking hell is Nature Town funny. Yeah, Nature you, Town is really, really funny. If you have not seen Nature Town yet, it's their current short series they're doing. It's animated spectacularly crappily, which is the charm of it. Yeah. Um, it almost kind of feels like an Adult Swim show. It does, but it's like it's like what I always feel Adult Swim shows want to be and never are. Like, yeah, I, it feels like Adult Swim shows would have worked a lot better if they just tried to make them for the internet. Yeah. They don't work on TV because no, they're I, always... Like, they, like, they should be, like, three-minute-long episodes. Like, every Adult Swim show should be, like, three minutes long. But then they, like, kick it out to either sometimes they're short of, like, Ro- Robot Chicken or sometimes they're full 30-minute yeah. episodes. Well, and it's no coincidence that Robot Chicken is the only good one, I think, yeah. of the bunch. Because it's just, like, really funny skits. Yeah. And, Nature, yeah, Nature Town definitely feels like the best of that sort of subgenre of comedy. It's really funny. It's... It's remarkably clever, too, in just how much they get out of simple situations and dialogue and sort of wordplay. Like, it yeah. reminds me almost of Monty Python, or some of those skits where they would just yeah. get a lot of mileage out of just... Like, the one where it's like, you have cancer? Cancer's on my tail! Yeah. I, I don't see anything there! Like, that seems very, almost like a British style, style of humor, where yeah. you're just playing with words and throwing them back and forth. And then this most recent one... The sloth one? So the great. sloth one is my favorite by far. I mean, I saw, I saw, I've seen all three of these, because they... 
showed them at RTX. RTX on the live stream. Yeah. But the sloth one, it's I've seen it like five times and it's still it's great. just hilarious. The best part is when the sloth talks and it's Gus. Yeah. Oh my god, I lost it. I was just like, oh my god. That's yeah, so that's cool. one of the fun, the really fun things about all the different Rooster Teeth shows that I'm really excited for their other their Rooster Teeth series is. Yeah. It's like, the, since you know, if you're a big fan of all their stuff, like their podcasts and everything, you know the guys really well. And, and that the personalities. Adds, yeah, and that adds, like, this weird extra something once when they're actually, when they're voicing a character. Like, I wouldn't have thought of it until you did it, but of course Gus has to be the sloth. Yeah. Of course, of all the personalities. That's great. It's so funny. And I can't wait to see some other people worked in here. But Joel's been killing it as the turtle. As the turtle. Yep. yep. So, Chris's amazing yeah. it's like it's just like it's it's so cool that they're branching out and like all these like yeah. this is so different nature town is so different from everything else they do but it's and, super funny and you, you talked about how well they've done it just making their own sort of medium for red versus blue i think if rooster teeth continues this path they could be their own like channel and that's what's starting to feel like is you have yeah. red versus blue and nature town they're on they're airing in the same sort of capacity but they're totally different because there's different creative voices behind them mm-hmm. you know chris is not bernie yeah, and and Bernie would never write Nature Town in a million years. Yeah, and that's what's great. Yeah, about Yeah, it's these. a completely different style, but it still works. Really and that's well. what's great about them having this new, this larger staff that they keep expanding is there's new voices they're bringing in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we can. And talk then obviously to, there's all the stuff they do with Achievement Hunter, which is just so like great. the mountains of content that they put out. Yeah, they're killing it. I. Have you seen the shirt that they're going to be releasing of the Jack, like, silhouette with his beard and his achieve? <laughs> yeah. I might have to, I've never bought a Rooster Teeth shirt. I'm going to have to get that. That yeah, is that's, so funny. Yeah, it's it's just, like, they've become so huge. There's so many. I mean, you could, if you wanted to, you could just watch Achievement Hunter stuff. Like, that could be your entire relationship to the company. And it's like, that's... Yeah. And I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Like, I mean, because they put out all the, like, the Minecraft Let's Plays. If you don't watch those... Yeah. Just go... I mean, it's really, it's really funny because you can just... Like, if you just type in Minecraft in YouTube, like, yeah. most of the top, some, like, the top entries, they're, they're, they're Achievement Hunter Let's Plays. If you, like, all for, like, the Worms Let's Plays, if you just type in Worms, that comes up. Like, they're, they're so hysterically funny, and they're very different from how most people do Let's Plays, which is kind of interesting, too, because I don't know how much Rooster Teeth knows about, like, sort of the Let's Play scene, but Let's Plays are generally full playthroughs of games, and said they turned the Let's... Somehow they turned the Let's Play in, like, this, like... Almost like a skit show in a weird yeah. way. Like there are thirty minute episodes. It seems to me almost like a game show where you get all these weird personalities together, put them on an island, and this game. Yeah, and they game. have to compete with each other. Yeah. yeah, it's and I mean with their Minecraft, their recent Minecraft Let's Plays, it's almost like literally a game show. Yeah. So great stuff. Anything else you want to say about Rooster Teeth before we sign off? The Rooster Teeth is awesome, and if the I think everyone should support them in every way they can. And the podcast, I know we keep going, but the podcast has been so funny lately. <laughs> My blue eyes! <laughs> yeah, the, like, I mean, it's just so insane. I can't, I don't, can't fathom how much, how they can put out so much content from so many different venues. It's like, they've got Red vs. Blue, they've got Ancient Town, and then all, obviously, they're working on all those other Rooster Teeth series that they've sort of teased. And then they've got their podcast that they put out every week. They've got the animated adventures from the podcast that they put out every week. Yeah. They've got, like, Let's Plays. They've got Achievement Horse. They've got things to do in. It's just complete... It just blows my mind. And they it keep does. on putting out new shows. And, you know, I, we don't talk about it much, but I would actually have to say, gun to my head, my favorite Rooster Teeth production is the podcast. The amount of time I spend listening and yeah. laughing to, at that. So, so much entertainment. So great. Yeah. 
So anyway, and that's honestly, I think that's probably why we started our own podcast is we liked their format where they just were friends who talked about stuff, and we realized yeah, it's uh, what I like about their podcast, as opposed to like a lot of other podcasts, is that their podcast isn't overproduced. Yeah, there's something there's something really comfortable about that where it doesn't feel like it's a radio show. Yeah, it's like you've got like all these like like music coming in in the background and like these like specifically defined segments and stuff. No, and I, it's also really funny now that they have sponsors to hear how awkward it is for Gus trying to handle plugging sponsors. He's horrible at it, but it's great. Yeah. But, yeah, and I actually, I that's an effective advertisement base. I'm surprised people didn't do it earlier because I've looked at pretty much everything they've advertised. I have I hated Bing. When they started talking about Bing stuff, I actually was compelled to look at Bing. I still fucking hate Bing, but it was like, it compelled me to actually give it a look. That's a good place to advertise, I think. Yeah. I think so too. We should I advertise our podcast there. Yeah, other rates. Or maybe people should come to our podcast and advertise on our podcast. Yes. And give us money. If we in fact we will sell our podcast for two billion dollars. Yes. Anyone? Right away. Yes. Seriously, we will. Yes. Anyway. So that's that's our main topic. Um, I think we're gonna sign off for this week. Sean, is there anything else you want to talk about? I don't think so. Uh, just a little preview of coming events. As we understand coming it, attractions. As we understand it. Our favorite sci-fi series, Doctor Who, will be coming back this year, it, later this month in August, and if you've listened to any of our previous podcasts, like the Monthly 10 and the Monthly Stuff, Sean and I are huge Doctor Who fans. Sean happens to be one of the few people on the planet Earth who has seen every single Doctor Who serial. <laughs> well, there, there's, there's, there's a few of us if you go on the internet, but yeah, there's. Yeah. If, if you don't know Doctor Who, it's... What started in 1963, yeah. and it just went to 1989, and then picked up again in 2005, and is going. It's like it's it's the longest running sci-fi show there is. Yeah, and it's my favorite show. Yeah, I've watched. It's so, I've watched over like 750. I forgot the exact count of episodes at this point, but it's it's yeah. 770 something. Yeah, so and I've watched them all. Yep. So. It's actually really great. If you are a Doctor Who fan or if you're new to the series, you really do want to listen to our discussions because Sean is an absolute expert on it. And I, I think I'm I'm not an expert on the whole thing, but I know a lot about the modern series. Mm-hmm. And I love talking about it. We're both really enthusiastic about it. And I think we've done some really good conversations over the year, over the last year and a half about Doctor Who. And when season seven, are they into season seven already? Of the yeah. Movie? Jeez, that just seems weird to me. Yeah, we do. Okay, so they're into series seven, the third one with Matt Smith. That also sounds weird. 784 episodes. 784, I was, that was a bit off. They're, reached, they're getting near 800. Anyway, so when they start their seventh series later this uh, August, as I understand it, we're going to talk about every episode on the podcast. That doesn't mean that's going to be the only thing we talk about every week, but we are going to have at least a you know half-hour discussion. Yeah, we're going to have a segment at least. At the end of every episode to avoid spoilers, or if you don't care about Doctor Who, you don't have to listen to it. And we'll we'll talk about the episode, dissect it. And but if you don't care about Doctor Who, you're, you're just you're a bad person, and you should, you should invest in Doctor yeah. Who. It, really, it, it enriches your soul. Yeah. I can kind of understand if, like, the like old black and white Doctor Who isn't quite your thing. Yeah, no, the I modern, mean that's totally fine. But yeah, yeah the modern the mo- Doctor Who's one I of the best shows on television. It is, and I can't imagine anyone not liking it. There's just a charm and earnestness to it uh, that's really great and really accessible. And they've made something that was—it's sort of like almost the new Star Trek movie, where they made something that was previously seen as really nerdy and niche mm-hmm. into something that they didn't give up on what made it good, but they made it really accessible. Yeah. And especially with Matt Smith, who is so brilliant, so happy to see more of him, and it sounds like he'll be on for at least this season and another one. Yeah. So, longest running of the modern era, and I think he deserves that title. Yes. So, very excited. You're going to have a lot of crazy David Tennant fangirls after you, after you said that. 
We they will they will claw your eyes out. David Tennant fangirls are terrifying. Oh, I know. We've talked about the David Tennant fangirls before. You and I both have targets on our foreheads about the yeah, David. and that's funny because we both love David Tennant. See, he's just like I love every actor that's played the Doctor. But yeah, he's, there there's just like just there's just some th- there's some topics that if there you, are like fanboys and fangirls of that if you touch it they will kill you. Yeah, I mean if you don't say David Tennant is the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, but better, you're gonna get flamed. Yeah. So. With a flamethrower. Not like just on the internet. They're going to find your house and burn it down with a flamethrower. So here's something funny, Sean. Yes? I've been watching the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation because they just released the remastered Blu-rays, which mm-hmm. are fantastic. Love them. But there are sonic screwdrivers on Star Trek. There are? Yes. I haven't watched TNG in a really they, long time. They, so. I don't know if they have them on the later seasons because like, I don't remember anything with the early years either. I don't usually watch them. But they do, like, the engineers are working with them and, and someone says, what are you using? And he says, it's a sonic screwdriver. Or, say, do, were they actually, like, driving screws with it? Um, or, no. They were, they, doing, were they, like, they mending were, fences? No, they were doing the same thing Doctor Who does where they're just, like, they're running it and they're, like, They analyzed. just, like, wave it at stuff and it's like, oh, that's... The, this, like, this is There's a problem of, with the aluminum. I yeah, don't. this is made of tangentium dichloride. Yeah. <laughs> tangentium dichloride? I don't know. It's some yeah. bullshit science thing. Yep. But I'm so excited to see what uh, they've got in the store on Doctor Who this year. There's an episode called Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. <laughs> is that <laughs> the name of the episode? <laughs> yes. It's wow. gonna, it's gonna be cool. There's a Dalek episode. There's, there's, it's gonna be good. Yeah, so, so. If, you, so if you're a fan of Doctor Who, just look forward to the next few. Yes. So the next looks forward to this because we're going to have to talk about the show. Yeah. And we'll see if we do a pre-Doctor Who podcast. I don't know if we need to do anything about the series as a whole, but we will, the for the season premiere, that will be the topic of that episode. Because um, doing a podcast on the series as a whole, that's a, that's a long podcast when the show started in yeah. 1963. So. But if, if you do want to hear us talk about Doctor Who, go back to the monthly 10 feed, and there's a three-parter from April of 2011 where we talked about the whole series... And we did. Uh, we talked about the best serial from every Doctor, and so I would listen to that. And then we did a in August, whenever the season ended, something about the whole series six. And then we did something about the Christmas specials, and yeah, and then it became a running gag that we couldn't stop talking about Doctor Who. So and that gag will continue into the future. Yes, and hopefully it will be combined with our Prometheus gags. I see. I see. I I love the fact that they're making another Prometheus, I and I I don't know if I want it to be really good or if I want it to be just as bad. Like yeah. I can't. I don't. I have such mixed feelings about it right now. Either way, it'll be interesting. Yes, it will. Okay. So with that in mind, we will see you next week, and we'll figure out what we're going to talk about by then. Okay. Hopefully. <laughs>